I think there's something in worship when we have all the instruments together building to a grand anthem of praise. And I think there's something about all the instruments cutting out and hearing human voices in worship, giving glory to God. And that's what we've done today. It quiets our hearts. There are times when we need to be celebratory and there are times when we need to be quiet before him. And I like the fact that we do all of that in worship. So let's quiet our hearts. Heavenly Father, in this hour, we look to you, the only one who can provide life, the only one who can forgive sin, the only one who can give to us a life that never ends. All glory be to Christ. My Father, some in this room don't know you. They don't have the peace that you've provided. And I pray, Father, that you will work in their heart until they realize their need and their only hope is to turn to Christ in genuine trusting faith and cast their all upon him. That is not a foolish venture, Lord, because we know you are the most reliable one in the universe. Indeed, the only truly reliable one. And because you said, whoever will come to me, I will never cast them away. That guaranteed promise is always true. Bring people to yourself today, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the amazing word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David McCullough, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, has written many books on history, especially regarding the War of Independence, the American Revolution. Wrote about John Adams, a wonderful book on 1776. Anyhow, when he won the Pulitzer Prize, he was at his home in New England, and uh, he received the call of congratulations that the, indeed the award was his. Soon, friends and reporters and media people were calling him, government leaders, people from different publishing houses, all to congratulate him for this amazing award. And he took the calls all day long. He took them from morning till night, and finally they began to dissipate somewhat so that he could sit down with his family and he began to have a quiet dinner. As they were eating, the silence was broken by another phone call. His wife, Rosalie, went and answered the phone. She said, honey, it's a, it's a well-known magazine on the line. They want you. He said, somewhat reluctantly, okay, I'll take the call, sure. He got up and answered the phone and a woman on the end of the line said, my name is Mary and we'd like to know if you would, you would renew your magazine subscription <laughs> to our magazine. Before he got back to the table, his son said, that was a lesson in the law of physics. The balloon goes up and the balloon comes down. <laughs> and I think in all of our lives, we have situations where we have began to think perhaps more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. 
And we are filled sometimes with the sense of our own value and worth, and we fail to see ourselves from God's perspective. But God is really good at taking the air out of our balloons. And I'm glad for that. It's a mercy. Because you cannot be saved if you don't see your need. That's what the book of Romans has been telling us. It started out with uh, three chapters filled with the fact that we are needy people. We are sinners, whether we're moral people and basically, according to human standards, we are all sinners against the law of God. The law puts up a righteous standard reflecting the character of God and none of us can reach that for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, his righteous standard. And because of our sin against God, we are under his judgment. That was mentioned in Romans chapter one as well. For the wrath of God has been revealed. And judgment has come, in some ways is now coming on us. And of course at the end, at the very end, God will vindicate himself and his truth and judgment will be meted out in a perfectly godly fashion. So what a joy it was to finish those three chapters of Romans and feel the weight of our need, but then at the end of chapter three to get into the wonderful scripture that tells us that we can receive a righteousness from God. We can't buy it, we can't earn it. It's a gift, and it's received by faith. Faith is the outstretched, empty hand that takes what God offers. And when by faith we believe the word of God, the spirit of God transforms our hearts, lives within us, we become the children of God, and all kinds of cool things begin to happen. So I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. That's where we... Uh, left off, Romans. We looked at the first five verses of Romans chapter five. It deals with the fruit of our justification and the last section of the chapter, and we won't get that far today, but it talks about the basis of our justification. And justification is God declaring us justified, God declaring us righteous in his sight, not our sight. But in his sight, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The fruit of justification in the first few verses, we talked about the peace of God, verse 1. The grace of God, verse 2. We now, by faith, have access into this grace in which we live. It's our environment, should be, in which we stand. And we also have the glory of, or the hope of God that he gives to us of future glory. Now, we rejoice in that glory, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, which ultimately produce that glory. The sufferings that come to us, we're told in verse three, give us perseverance and character and hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because God has given us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has poured out into our hearts the flood of God's 
love. Isn't that a great statement? Poured into our hearts. It's not just a pittance. It's, it's not just a drop. It's not just a taste. It's a flood. And the Holy Spirit, who is that ever life-giving stream, ever flowing, John tells us, is in our hearts to show us the love of God. So let me just read to you all together, verse six through 11, and then we'll come back and try to unpack it. Verse six, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then based on that truth, verse nine, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast or glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Paul is talking about the death of Christ. As you go through this paragraph, you'll see in verse six, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, Christ died for us. Verse nine, we are justified by his blood, indicative of Christ dying. And then in verse 10, we've been reconciled to the Father through the death of his Son. It's all about the death of Christ. A historical event that has unbelievable significance. So we want to ask the question, what does Paul say about the death of Christ? And first of all, he talks about who this death is for. Who is it for? And there, here, there, there is here in this section of Romans a um, character sketch that Paul builds of all humanity. It is a miserable list of personal traits that Paul gives to us, but it's true. Just quickly in verse six, we are without strength. That is helpless and unable to save ourselves. Verse six also says we have the trait of being ungodlike or even anti-God. We rebel against his authority and live exactly opposite of who he is and what he desires. We are unlike God, we are ungodly. Verse eight, we are sinners. Even in our attempts to obey the law of God, we've missed the mark. We've fallen short of that glorious standard of God. And in verse 10, we are enemies. We're not his distant friends and relatives. We are insurrectionists. You say, well, I haven't done anything to attack God. Have you sinned? 
One sin is an attack against the holy character of God, declaring your independence. We are insurrectionists. And so, that's why the wrath of God comes. And that's the individuals for whom Jesus died. If you are a sinner, you qualify to be saved. If you don't think you are a sinner, you don't think you need to be saved, and you don't care about all of this. But Jesus died for those who are sinners, and that means you, whether you realize it or not. So many people disagree. There is the uh, witty response that Henry David Thoreau gave to his aunt who was a Christian Henry David Thoreau was dying of tuberculosis on his deathbed, soon to pass away. And his aunt said to him, Henry, have you made your peace with God? And he said, I didn't know we had a quarrel. Sad, many people don't know they're at odds with God. It's somewhat witty and it's rather blasphemous. Sigmund Freud is a, another individual who had a rough time with spiritual things. He was interviewed in 1927. He declared his lack of faith and his indifference to the afterlife. One of his friends, a fellow physician, came to Christ and he wrote to Sigmund Freud a letter with thoughts like this. God made it clear to my soul that the Bible is his word, that the teachings about Christ are true and that Jesus is our only hope. And after such a clear revelation, I accepted the Bible as God's word and Jesus is my savior. And I beg you, my brother physician, to give thought to this important matter. To which Freud wrote back, God has not done so much for me. He has never allowed me to hear an inner voice. And if, in view of my age, he does not make haste, it would not be my fault if I remain to the end of my life what I am now, an infidel Jew. In one of his papers, he wrote, God allows such horrors to occur, and I will hold him responsible. And to a letter to another physician, James Jackson Putnam of Boston, he expresses his anger and his defiance. I have no dread at all of the Almighty, and if we ever were to meet, I should have more reproaches to make to him than he could ever make to me. You see, it is a moral offense for us to say to people who think they're good, you are not. To say, it's not my view of things, this is God's view of things. Listen to what God has to say. And if I ever meet him, someone will say, I have more things to say to him than he could ever say to me. That's the attitude of those who don't know Christ. We should not be surprised and we should not attack. We should in love go after them because that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. He died for sinners.
And whether you believe it or not, you qualify. So the scripture tells us that's the individuals that he died for. And by the way, notice verse seven. It's incredibly difficult to die for another person. Rarely would someone die for a righteous person. Sometimes for love of country, sometimes for love of family, someone will give up their life. And for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. One commentator said a righteous person is someone who just does what is upright, but a good person is beyond doing what's right. They're warm and they're kind and they're friendly. And, and so, though for a good person, some might, someone might possibly even dare to die. It's unthinkable that someone would die for the wicked. And the character of the object our character heightens the quality of God's love. He died for sinners. He died for rebels. He died for those who had no power to save themselves. He dies for those who are his enemies. So to say that a person is a sinner is to say that they are the object of God's love. Did you notice at the beginning of the verse, in, at just the right time, it's translated in different uh, Bible translations, you see just at the right time, or in due time, or at the perfect time. I don't think you can say in the nick of time, because that sounds like God is hurried and just barely got it done. This has been a plan from all eternity. The vital element in God's well-established plan is the death of his son and everything was working toward it. So when Jesus was born, Galatians 4 tells us, he was born in the fullness of time, right? And when it tells, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for all, a testimony delivered at the proper time. And when Jesus was with his disciples, he was constantly saying to them, it's not the right time. The hour hasn't come. They were pushing him to declare his kingship. And he said, not now. It's not the right time. But then at the supper, the hour has come. It's time. It's all about timing. You and I have a problem with God's timing. I just want you to know he has no problem with his timing. It's always perfect. So at that perfect time, in due time, the fullness of time, not my time, God sent forth his son. But there's a second question we need to ask about the death of Christ, where Paul asks and answers, and it's this. Why did it happen? Why did he die? And the answer is, in the heart of God, he was moved by love. This is all in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us. In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners, still rebels, his mercy is shown. The word demonstrate 
speaks of something public, something done so that others can take it in and see it, to display. I like the translation of, uh, of one, I think it's the uh, New English version who says, that says, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that is God's proof, his proof of his love toward us. So he demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves sinners, although there's nothing in us that would draw out love from him. By the way, the original is very emphatic when it says that this is his love, the love of the Father. Because sometimes, sometimes people believe there is a God of the Old Testament who's harsh and wrathful, and there's a God of the New Testament depicted in Christ who is kind and loving, and the two are separate. But that is not true. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. The death of Christ did not elicit from the Father feelings that he had not before. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us. And the father weeps as the sinner sins. The death of Christ does not produce the love of God. It declares it. It proves it. Now I know you're not very loving. Sometimes. And I know that some of you feel like you're very unloving. Maybe you've been rejected in this world by a spouse or a child or a friend or whatever it might be and you've gotten the sense that I am not worth anything and no one could ever love me. Now that's different than acknowledging you're a sinner. But I want you to know that God loves you. Isn't that a great truth? You don't believe it. Half the time, I don't believe it. And we're robbed of joy and power and glory when we live a life that is not saturated in God's love for us, proven at the cross in the death of his son. For God so loved the world. Here's the gospel in four words. Christ died for us. Did you notice verse eight? His love for us. Christ died for us. The one the motive. The other the action. One is historic. The death of Christ. You can point to a time and place. You can visit the area. Although you don't know the exact place near the city of Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried. There's history in it, but there's also in theology in it, in the sense that it was his love for us. Christ died, that is history. For us, that is mercy. That is theology. And you need both to come together. Theology is always supported by history. 
As you read through your Bible, there is no other belief system in God that can point to historical events like Christianity can to support all its major truths. Our faith is not a leap in the dark. It's based on actual facts, but the historical event has great spiritual, theological significance. And that's what Paul is drawing out for us. He died for us. Some of the Greek prepositions have a lot of possible meanings. It could be this, it could be that, maybe four, five, six different possibilities. But this particular preposition, for us, on our behalf, is concrete. Jesus died in our place. For us. Who's us? The powerless, the sinners, the rebels, the ungodly. And that's the, the good news of the gospel is this. There's hope for a person like you and me. And it's found in the Savior's death on the cross. Ben Franklin is quite an amazing patriot. And I, I enjoy reading some and watching some movies during the 4th of July weekend, which I did last weekend, just to remember this amazing event in our own history. And Franklin was used of God in some amazing ways. He wrote something called the Poor Richard's Almanac with a lot of witty sayings in it. I think it's in this almanac. Correct me someone if I'm wrong. Where he says, God helps those who help themselves. I can't remember how many times people have quoted that to me as scripture. Well, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. No, the Bible says we're powerless. Romans 5, 6. We're helpless. That's what the Bible says. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's the gospel. And so the scripture tells us over and over and over again, it's this amazing, perfect love of God that comes after us in hot pursuit with the death of Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit dogging your steps and making you feel guilty and showing you your sin and opening up for you the truth of the death of Christ on the cross. That's God working after you. So the death of Christ, who is it for? It's for sinners. Why did it happen? Because God loves us so much. And then the last thing, the last question, what does the death of Christ achieve? And this may not be an exhaustive list, but it's a vitally important one. Verse nine, since we now have been justified how much more? Paul gets into some simple reasoning. He uh, develops the argument that since one thing is true, it infers that a second thing must be true. Since we now have been justified, and that by his death, the shedding of the blood on the cross, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
If he saved us when we were his enemies, how much more will he deliver us from the coming day of wrath when we are now his friends? When he has reconciled the enmity, he has eliminated the conflict between us and drawn us into his family, how much more will we find the assurance of salvation based on the love of God for us who justified us, giving us confidence that we will not endure the wrath of God. Someone said the harder thing to justify sinners guarantees the easier thing, once justified, they will not be the objects of his wrath. When the death angel came through the land of Egypt, the last of the plagues, and the Hebrew people were told to take all of their family inside, shut the door, slay a lamb, and put blood on the door. Inside, that night, whether they could hear the sound or not, they knew the ominous deed would be done. The death angel comes sweeping through the town. And God said, when I see the blood, I will, what? Pass over that home. What if the eldest son inside was trembling? <laughs> it didn't make any difference. He was under the blood. What if he was weak and he was a sin, sinful person? He thought, you know, maybe God is not going to accept me because I've not followed him like I should. He's under the blood. The trembling sinner feareth that God will not forget, but one full payment cleareth God's memory from all debt. And if God Almighty has justified you because of simple faith in his son, because of the death of Christ, you've, you've believed upon him. How much more will he save you from the wrath to come? Because you're under the blood. And the death of Christ covers you. So we rejoice now as we stand before our heavenly God. Think of it in a simple syllogism. We were enemies. We are reconciled. We shall be saved. The great church father Chrysanthem said, if God gave a great gift to enemies, will he, not, will he give anything less to his friends? Look at verse 10. For if... While we were God's enemies, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more? Same argument. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now there's something interesting that is added here to the death of Christ. It is the life of Christ. First of all, that word reconciliation, and it was a rare word in that day, and theologically, it's probably an unusual word in our day, but the God who is justly angry, you have to have that first, we're sinners, God is justly angry, Romans 1, his wrath is upon us, Jesus dies for sinners, 
And now my God is reconciled. His wrath has been appeased. His justice satisfied because his perfect son paid the price. He died for us. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. And that's where our hope is. So we are reconciled. Pastor Doug read a few moments ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Spend some time in that chapter. God has reconciled us. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed this message to us to tell others the message of reconciliation. Forever preserved in a state of peace, enmity removed, punishment gone, sin no more. And we're taken into the love of God forever. It's the prodigal son, right? Who takes from his father all that he had coming to him. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And he went off, willfully defiant, living his own sinful way. Takes what he can from the father and leaves the father high and dry. But he comes to himself. He wakes up to reality. This is not right. And he comes back in repentance to his father. But before he gets home, his father sees him and comes running to embrace him. The love of God for sinners. And takes away his debt. And gives him what he doesn't deserve. The shoes, the ring, the robe, the acceptance. Why did Jesus tell that story? Because people didn't know the heart of God is the heart of love. Verse 11, not only is this so. But we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation. We boast in glory. Paul said in Romans 5 earlier, we boast in suffering. And now we boast in God. In the hope of his promise, we have received reconciliation. Notice this, in verse five, God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, God's love in us. At the cross, verse eight, God demonstrates his love for us. It's the love of God in us and the love of God for us that formed the foundation of the assurance of our salvation, a love it will never let us go. For when we are reconciled with him, we're, we're introduced to a permanent state because once you are justified, you will be glorified, Paul says in Romans 8. There's no leakage. It's a perfect, perfect connection. Justified, 
will be glorified. I have this hope, this certain promise because God is true. It's an objective hope because of the cross. It's also a subjective hope because the Holy Spirit who's been poured out into my heart is a witness that I am a child of God. Sometimes I think we miss that. And in our worship with God, we must understand that there is this significant, subjective connection from our heart to his. And God tells us we are his own. He proves his love on the cross. He pours out his love into our hearts. The Father has the Son dying for us. The Father has the Holy Spirit living in us. And the triune God says, I am love and you are mine and I will not let you go. Not too long ago, I was driving down the road and a Toyota Prius passed me. And when it passed, I noticed on the back tailgate a sign that said, new driver. As they passed by, I also noticed that the front fender was damaged and sticking out like a broken wing. And with my great powers of deduction, I said, that makes sense, new driver. <laughs> they went by me 80 miles an hour. <laughs> Speed limit in Michigan in some places is 75, so 80 is not so bad. But this was a 70. And they were going 80. And I said to myself, new driver, 80 mile an hour? Reckless? That doesn't seem to make sense. You say, well, who do you think you are? You think you're a great driver? No, I just like to criticize. <laughs> I'm thinking something's not right here. You know, it's so quick to go into the mode of condemnation. I'm not going that fast. I don't have a bumper that's messed up if I did, I'd take care of it. And I don't proclaim all of my theology and worldview on the back of my car, especially because of the way I drive. <laughs> but then I thought, you know, maybe it's not their car. Maybe it's stolen. <laughs> or better yet, maybe it's a, a relative's car that they had to borrow and they're not a new driver and the relative is sick in the hospital and they're going as fast as they can to get there and maybe it all makes sense. That was after I condemned them for several violations. And as I come back to Romans, I say, you know, it's so much like me to justify myself and condemn others. When God says, according to my law, you're all sinners and you've broken the law and everyone needs a savior. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, including their own, and they're almost always wrong, but God never is. One look of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ dying in your place on the cross brings justification. 
reconciliation and certain glorification because God loves you. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to the truth of scripture that should draw us to believe. It is so powerful, the love of God, so mighty, so vast. We don't think of it enough. We don't dwell in its power enough. We don't enjoy the benefit of it. It is one thing to say that Christ died. It's another thing, Lord, to say that you died for me. It's the best thing to live in the power and freedom of that amazing love. Lord, help me to do it. Help my friends here to do it. And those who don't know Christ, that don't know you, Lord, speak to their hearts that they may come and trust you today. In your name we pray, amen.